If you have your scriptures, open your Bible. Psalm 5, I'm reading from the ESV. And let's read together. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not, enter, or not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield." Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to give us wisdom and insight as we study your word. Open our hearts to hear and to receive your truth. And God, we recognize that psalms like this, where David is honest about his feelings and he's honest about his enemies, they shock us. And so, God, allow us to be able to know and understand what it looks like to be honest with you about our distress and honest with you about what our lives are going through. And I pray that you would give us the ability to trust and be confident in your character as we study your word. pray this. Amen. So I want to begin with a question. When was the last time that your world fell apart? Your life, your plans, your dreams came head to head with crisis. And it caused deep, deep discouragement or depression. When was the last time your world fell apart? I'm giving you time to think. My next question is this. What did you do? What did you do? What was your response? 
So when was the last time your world fell apart, and what was your response? This week, the kids and, and Des and I were shopping for back-to-school items. And we had an amazing kind of little life lesson that unfolded right in front of our very eyes. We were just shopping for shoes, for backpacks, when all of a sudden we heard over and over and over, help, 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 in German. Hilfe. Uh, and it, it arrested everybody's attention in the department store. What is taking place? I, is, is, does somebody have a heart attack? Is, 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 some, is somebody facing a kind of a health crisis in front of us? Immediately, your head begins to turn. You're on a swivel. You're trying to understand what is taking place. Is there anything that I could do? Somebody is in distress. And we quickly found out that it was an elderly woman. And what she had lost was her purse. With everything that she owned, all of her little, uh, not all of her little, not her personal items, but also her money and her cards and all that was important to her. And so we, uh, we, and by we, I mean Des. Des is normally the one that speaks up in in German. I I stared. Uh, Desiree began to ask her questions. What color is it? Where did you leave it? And this poor lady was so worked up, and I mean distressed to the point where her hands were shaking and she couldn't communicate. And I thought she would have a heart attack. I was worried for her health. And she couldn't even communicate to anyone in any way so that anyone could provide help. She was so overwhelmed. And afterwards, there was a good ending. Somebody in the store did find the purse. They were able to return it to her and life went back to normal. And we sat down and we had a meal with our kids and we said, guys, What happened in the store? And what we saw was a person who went into crisis. For her, it was over her purse. I'm not making any judgments. Maybe she had a lot of money. Maybe she had her cards. Uh, She did say many times it was a Louis Vuitton purse, which seemed to be the main reason. Not a lie. The first thing when she did mention, it wasn't the color, it wasn't where. She just kept saying, it's Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton. It gave me a little insight to maybe what the crisis was. No judgments. That's the true story. But it did make me realize that in big ways and small, all of us are going to go through crisis in life. It happens. And the question that I asked you, when was the last time that your world fell apart? More than likely you should be able to reflect back on a moment where your little world came apart. And sometimes it doesn't take tragedy or death. Sometimes it's the loss of a purse that basically sends our world spinning as we try to wrestle or grasp with this little thing that I love, this little thing that is dear, the plan or the vision or the job, the dreams that I had that were so precious are suddenly threatened. And sometimes it actually is very legitimate things where there are very real threats. And that's what we see in the scripture today. And so what I want us to do this morning is this. The psalm that I just read, this lament psalm, this psalm number five, was a psalm written by David. And just so you know, these aren't psalms where David thought, I'm a poet, I love writing, I'm just going to sit down and write sad poems. 
David was going through real-life experiences that led him to pour out his heart before the Lord, and we have literally the copies of what David produced. And so we are reading, much like this little incident where we saw in the store of, of a woman who lost a purse, or it could be your own personal distress that you're going through, in Psalm 5 we're reading David pouring out his heart about a very real distress that is taking place in his life. And what I want us to see is this. If I were to give this sermon a title, it would be Worshiping God When Our World Falls Apart. What does that look like? Because this is the, one of the most important things that you will learn. And it's, it's not something that you just naturally have inside of you. Is that God's word teaches us how to respond when our little world falls apart. And let me just uh, remind you that as we were children, our world did fall apart over small things. It was a pacifier that was taken out of our mouth. It was when a parent said no or a teacher said no. And as we get older, we, we begin to deal with adversity. We begin to deal with somebody who says no. We begin to deal with, when Tim mentioned today, when we get the email that is, that is, pretty straightforward or blunt or points out our flaws, does our little world come unraveled? And what do we do? Have you had that happen where something kind of, uh, not even tragic, but once, once again, something happens where maybe somebody says something or does something and that just rules your world. It rocks your world. Your mind, all it does is think about them and what they said and what you would say back. You play this little movie in your head, even though the movie actually never gets lived out. It, but it's living in your head. And so what we need to do as we come to this text today is we need to recognize your world will fall apart. Maybe right now it is falling apart in your eyes. And how do we worship God in our response when our world falls apart? That's our goal today. I typically almost always give you an overview. Let me give you an overview today. So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to talk just about, they're kind of a teaching point. What is a lament psalm? There's many types of psalms in, uh, in the book of Psalms. And our goal for this summer was to highlight the major types of psalms to equip you to better read God's Word. So I know we've looked at a royal psalm with Stefan. I know that I taught on a wisdom psalm, and, and so did Tim. I know that Josh taught what we think consider more of a praise or a hymn as a psalm in Psalm 103. And so this morning, I want to equip you to ha- know how to read lament psalms. The second thing we're going to do is talk about context because it seems, to the best of our understanding, this Psalm 5 is closely connected with Psalm 3. And we have a a set of lament psalms that follow Psalms 1 and 2 that all arise from a specific context. And I want to explain what that context was. Number three, this is what we want to walk away with, a model for worshiping God when our world falls apart. So if you look at Psalm 5, it's actually divided into what we call strophes. There's five strophes, and each one is going to show us kind of a step of how David responded to this tragedy. And it will be a model for us of how we could also respond. The fourth thing we're going to do today is we're going to kind of look at some foundational theology. And one of the things that we need to walk away from today is recognizing suffering is a part of life, and it needs to be a part of your theology. 
And if you're not grounded to know how to deal with suffering, how Scripture speaks of suffering, you're not prepared for life. And lastly, we'll just look at some application. Okay? So that's where we're going. Five things we're doing today. Lament Psalm. Look at the context. Look at the model. Talk about the foundational theology of suffering and application. So let's jump right into it. The first thing I want to talk to you is just about lament psalms in general. So this is not specifically about our text, but this is looking at the psalms as a whole and wanting to equip you to better read the psalms or to know how they're structured. So for your information, and this is probably insightful, 150 psalms, one-third are what we would consider lament psalms or, or song, uh, prayers or poems, or songs that are expressing immense uh, distress and crying out to God for help. The reason that's insightful, just think about this. I don't know how much of your life has been spent kind of in the trials of adversity, some more than others, but the reality is we tend to think of adversity as it's, it only touches our lives here and there, and typically we don't want it to touch our lives and we pray that it doesn't happen. But if you think of David as a man after God's own heart, if you look at the collection of psalms that we have, now David didn't write all 150, but what I can tell you is a full third of the psalms, which we call our, our worship hymnal, right? We think of worship, we always think of glad songs. But a full third of the psalms are laments. And it should speak right into our lives that this is a part and parcel of living this life. That we come face to face with tragedy, with trials, with adversity. And we need to have a God-centered answer to know how to respond. So typically, lament psalms follow a pattern. It's not 100%, but here's five things that you'll see in a lament psalm. First, you'll see an address to God, and it's a lament. So, for example, in verse uh, chapter 5, it starts with, give ear to my words, give attention. It's a plea to God. Sometimes it'll start out, why, O Lord? Sometimes it will plea for help. Sometimes it starts with, how long must I wait on your answer? How long must I watch my enemies be exalted over me? So lament psalms typically start with kind of a cry from the heart to God. And they typically start with, give ear, hear my prayer, a question why, a question how. The next thing that we often see is a profession of innocence or a confession of sin. So I remember I told you that these these poems are kind of in strophes. That's like three or four verses at a time. This is the kind of the poetry that David writes. We tend to write uh, poetry that might rhyme every other verse. That's not the kind of poetry that David wrote. The kind of poetry that David writes is different. And oftentimes, after he has an address to God, and after he has a confession of sin or a profession of innocence, we get right to the heart, which is a petition or request that's in the middle of the psalm. And this is usually the heart of the psalm. Fourthly, we see a confession of trust in God or confidence in God. And lastly, we see a vow to praise God. And you'll see uh, some of these things in our passage today. It definitely begins with an address or lament, give ear to my words. It definitely ends with a vow to praise. If you, if you look at, uh, for, for example, uh, verse 12, for your, 
You bless the righteous, O Lord, who covers him with a favor as a shield. And David talks about how he's going to sing for joy in verse 11. And it does, definitely has a confession or of trust. And that's in the middle. So, that's enough of the teaching just about lament psalms. But I, it wouldn't be right to cover this psalm without at least sharing with you that this is a significant type of psalm that you will encounter. A full third of the psalms will be in a form similar to this. And you would do well if you read them understanding, okay, I understand the parts and I'm understanding what's taking place. Second thing we want to tackle today is the context. Now, when I read Psalm 5, it may not really have registered much in your brain. Yes, you registered the words, but oftentimes without a context, without a story, to, to be able to kind of put these truths on, our mind doesn't fully process. If you look at the Psalms, look at Psalm 3, if you have your Bible open, it says Psalm 3, this is the first lament psalm in all of the Psalms. It's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. There's a little, uh, we, there's a little kind of title to Psalm 3. And then in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, and seven, we, f- we see lament after lament. The best guess from commentators is that all of these laments are connected by this one event. And that David has written these at this specific time. And the event was David fleeing from his son Absalom. So let me give you some context. Maybe as I tell you the story, you'll remember what exactly happened. This is from... 2 Samuel 15 to 18. And if you aren't familiar with the story, David is king of Israel. And his son, Absalom, not Solomon, this is Absalom, is now a grown man. And David has multiple sons, and Absalom recognizes he might not be the one who actually ascends the throne. And Absalom begins to develop a plan. And by the way, just so you know, the Bible actually even tells us, it said from the, the, his heel to his head, Absalom didn't have a flaw. And he had this beautiful, long hair. If there probably there ever was a man who looked like a model, Absalom would be the one in the scriptures that we could point to. This guy is chiseled. This guy is, is the quintessential, I guess, Jew, the Hebrew. I mean, the scripture literally goes as far to tell us. From his heel to his head, not a flaw. And Absalom began to hang out in the city gates. And he would sit in the city gates, and as men would come, Absalom would talk with them. And anyone who had a problem, Absalom would immediately just say, Hey, let me, tell me. Let, me. let me figure out how to help you. And over time, Absalom begins to win the hearts of Israel. He's hatching his plan, this devious plan where he recognizes... My goal is to win the hearts of men so that when the time is right, I can seize my father's throne. And so Absalom begins to hatch his plan. After about two years, he's going to throw a party. He's going to ask all the men to come, and he's going to go to a city separate from Jerusalem. And as he's there, he's going to invite his father's most trusted counselor, Ahithophel, and he's going to come, and Ahithophel is going to join him. When everybody goes, Absalom tells him his plan. I am going to take over the throne. Are you with me? 
and men start to flock out of Jerusalem, and they begin to join Absalom. And all of a sudden, David hears word. And they tell him, you need to run. And you need to run now. Don't stop. Don't gather anything. Get out of the city. Your life is in, in uh, danger. And so David basically collects what he can, and he leaves ten concubines to cover, or to basically stay in the palace. That's all he has left. And he is on the run. His, uh, his other wives, his children, his counselors, his most trusted men, they are on the run. No provisions, no protection. They're just trying to get out of the city. And Absalom comes back in. He takes over the city. He has David's most trusted counselor. And as David is fleeing the city, there's a, there's a relative of King Saul. And he literally is getting rocks and he's throwing them at David and he's cursing David. I don't know what it looks like when your world falls apart, but I can tell you at that point in time, with David literally putting dust and ashes on his head, and he took off his shoes, and he walked barefoot because he was so humbled at what was taking place. Because in an instant, one day he wakes up and he's king, and everything is normal. The next minute he has a messenger that says, flee, everything is at risk, get out of the city if you want your life. Have you had anything that turned your world upside down that fast? To process it's your own son? To process it's your most trusted advisor who has now betrayed ranks and has gone to help out your son? That knows every secret that you have? That knows how you think? That has been giving you advice as you've ruled? And now you think, I just lost my right-hand man. I've just lost my son. And now I'm on the run with nothing. And just hoping that my life is spared. That's where David is when he writes this psalm. And if we don't understand this context, then maybe it won't hit you as hard how heavy David's heart is. And that these just aren't emotional, distressful words. But this is a real situation and real life with real consequences. And it looked like life or death apart from all the betrayal. It looked like a complete reverse of fortunes. Can you imagine being king one day and then thinking, I'm just looking for a cave to hide out? Can you imagine feel like you're the most protected and trusted and loved man in the city? And the next minute, literally the ne- uh, within a few minutes, you're on the run and recognizing that most of the men in your city have gone out to join Absalom. That's the context. Now, I'm not going to drill down. One thing I want to be careful of. This specific psalm has a context. To the best knowledge of the commentators, they think these are connected. I'm not going to stake everything I have and say this is exactly the reason the psalm. But what I can tell you is it's in moments like this that David writes these lament psalms. There's a real story and a real context. To the best of my understanding, this this Psalm 5 is connected with this Psalm 3, and these are all laments that David writes on his journey out of Jerusalem as he's in hiding and as he's waiting on the Lord to know what to do. Okay? Everybody got the context? And hopefully that context changes this Psalm for you just a little bit. Now that we have the context, what I want to do is go to the model. Let's go right to the text, and I want to just highlight five ways that we can respond in the middle of distress. How can we worship God when our world falls apart? 
So let's go to this first group of verses. And the first thing I want you to see is that David goes to God and gives him control. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. David pleads again. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The first thing that David does is he goes to God and he gives him complete control of the situation. This is his first response. I don't know if when tragedy strikes, if maybe you're like this woman who I just described, who your mind is spinning so much that you don't even know what to do. It seemed like at that point in time, all she could process was the loss. Or maybe when you have faced adversity, the first thing that you tend to do is complain to the people around you. Anybody have that habit? You don't need to raise a hand. But anybody have the habit when, when things start to go wrong, your, your typical first response is simply that you begin to be more vocal with those around you and you let everybody know about the problem? And that most of your time sitting or thinking about the issue is actually just all of your, your outward processing and complaining to people? There's nothing wrong in seeking counsel. But if it's the first thing you do and your mind is not about trying to understand God's perspective but simply to complain, there's something wrong with that approach. What David does is he, the first thing he does, he goes to God and he gives him control. So we already mentioned David's request, give ear to my words, give attention to my cry. This, this word here, groaning, uh, it doesn't res, uh, actually mean any kind of semblance of like structured thought. It's basically this idea of I don't even know how to put into words what I'm feeling. And so David says, give ear, O Lord, consider my groaning, the sound of my cry. What David is saying, have you been at that place? I don't even know what to pray right now. I don't even know how to pray, but I know I am on my knees, and God, I'm just giving you what's on my heart, and I need help. It reminds me of the New Testament passage where we're told that it's the Holy Spirit that intercedes with us, with, with groanings that says too deep for words, that we don't have to have the right words, but the posture of our heart should be just to come and to ask God and say, God, I need you now. So David says, give, give he, uh, hearing to my groanings, these thoughts that I can't even put together. My mind is so confused. My heart hurts so bad. I can't give you a structured prayer, but I'm in the posture of just laying and pouring out my soul. Notice the theology where David says, my king and my God. I was watching an interesting show this week. Uh, it was uh, about uh, a deep sea diver who had, who had lost the connection with the ship above, where um, his, his water, his oxygen, everything had snapped because of a large wave. And he was, he, he was on the bottom, the person in the bell who was confessed, he said, I'm AC. He said, I don't believe in God, I don't pray. But he says, as I was recognizing there was no hope for him on the bottom of the sea. Nobody could get him. And I'm in this bell, suspended above him, and he's unconscious, and we don't know what to do. And he just kept saying, I kept praying over and over and over again. They also say, and if you've, you've probably heard this, there's no atheist in foxholes, that when we face crisis, we have this innate desire where we, we recognize, I know that in my normal life, I don't believe in a God. 
when everything's in my control and, and everything is kind of going my way. But when life goes sideways and I recognize that I actually control nothing, we begin to look and pray to God. Watch when somebody's in an accident or when, or when somebody has cancer. You will see all over Instagram or Facebook, everybody's saying, you know, offering prayers. To who? To what? That was the first thing I thought of this guy who's in this, you know, the diving bell, who said he was praying for this guy. Who did he pray to? And on what terms did he pray? The difference here, notice with David, he says, my king and my God. Do you know what a difference it makes to pray to the God who knows you and that you know to be God? Do you know what a difference that makes in your prayers? Do you know what the, the theology of knowing? I am praying to my God and my king, the one who sits enthroned above all, the one who has all power. Does that not change the ability to pray? Does that not change the ability to have comfort? Does that not change the fact when you feel helpless to know the one who does? And so David has this theology of prayer of looking to God as the one who is his God and his king. His God, not a God. Not the God that you pray to when you're in the bell and can do nothing saying, I'm just praying. I don't even know the words to pray. I don't know who I'm praying to because I don't even believe in a God and I don't believe he has the power to change. But I know I'm helpless and I have nothing else to say. And so David goes to God, not just any God, he goes to his God and the one he recognizes king. And this is what he does. We have this word picture here in verse 3. And it says, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice. The word sacrifice is actually not in the Hebrew text. But what David is getting at is this. Just like, because it's a word picture. In David's time there was no temple, but there was the the daily... um, Routine, the, the, the offering to God that began the day, that begins in Deuteronomy. And so David knows, here's what we do as those who know and follow God. We get up and we offer an offering to God, or we, we, we put out an offering to God. Because we know that a relationship with God looks like doing what is pleasing in his sight. And so David takes this image of offering a morning sacrifice, and he says, I get up, and in the morning of stabbing, offering the sacrifice, God, here's what I'm doing. My sacrifice is a prayer. I am on the run. And here's what I'm doing. I believe this prayer is what is offering an offering. I believe this prayer is what is acceptable. And so when you face crisis, what is the first thing you do? You go to God and you offer an acceptable sacrifice. And then notice what he does. He sits and waits. He says, I prepare my sacrifice for you, and I Watch. Hardest thing to do. Hardest thing to do when you're in crisis is to pray and give everything over to God. But this is the one thing that you must do. If you're going to be able to address crisis and meet it head on, you go to God and you allow him to be completely sovereign over the situation. And you watch. And this is the problem. One of the reasons that we stay so worked up is that we need to act. I need to say something to that person. I need to do this. Uh, I need to do something to make the situation. And you might need to do something, but first go to God and you pray and you watch and you see what God says. This is step number one. The second thing that we see in this model of how we worship God when our world falls apart is 
that we remind ourselves of God's character. This is essential. So in verses 4 to 6, David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, when I first read that passage, it might seem like really strong language. But if you actually understood the situation that we believe that David is speaking about, then you would know there is a conspiracy of epic proportions taking place. And these men are bloodthirsty. They would have David's head in a second if they could. And David is reminding himself of God's character, that God does not delight in wickedness, that evil does not dwell with God, that the boastful will not stand before God's eyes. He hates evildoers, and he hates those who speak lies. You've you got to know that David felt betrayed. And you've got to know that he felt like all of those men who said that they were loyal to me, they lied. Given an opportunity, they fled. They went to an, another better option. And why do people uh, change sides in kind of like a military coup? Because they have the chance to advance. If, if, you come in, if you go and join the other guy and you win, then everybody basically, it's like I get a promotion. I was in at the bottom level. So you had all these guys basically sell themselves out and say, hey, listen, if Absalom wins, we all are better off. And David's looking and, and, and thinking, that's what my friendship meant. That's what being king meant. That's what their loyalty meant. That at the minute, they have an opportunity. And so David's thinking and thinking, man, they speak lies. And he's recognizing that God destroys those who speak lies. Now, so David grounds himself in God's character. And he recognizes that, remember in Psalm 1, where we, we saw the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked? the righteous and the unrighteous. And we saw those two pictures, right? The two pictures were the blessed man was the tree planted by the water who will bear fruit. And in the middle of the drought, his leaves will not wither. That's the picture of the blessed man. We have the picture of the, of the unrighteous where it says they will not dwell with the Lord, that they will be punished. And one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of God's character in the middle of crisis is that while it seems that evil right now is winning, while the unrighteous look like they will prevail, that in the long run, we have to trust God's promises. God's promises are rooted in his character, and God will not change. So the second thing that you need to do is you need to remind yourself of God's character. You need to re- go back to your good theology. You need to go back and ground yourself and say, no matter what my eyes see, no matter what my emotions feel, I need to ground myself in the character of God because that never lies. The situation around me might seem like evil will win. The situation around me might seem like the evil are blessed and the wicked run while those who love God fall and fail but you need to ground yourself in God's character because God's character over the long term will always prove. None of God's promises fail. The third thing that we want to see is that David chooses to worship instead of worry. In verses 7 to 8, David says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. 
So this is the heart of this lament psalm. And it's the hinge. It's where everything changes. Because here you see that David uses contrasting word, but I. And then he's going to point specifically to something. Something that he is trusting that is going to change the entire situation that will move him from worry to worship. And what is that? He says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Just so you know, so this, this uses the word temple. The temple didn't exist in David's time. Uh, there was a tabernacle. But what David is clearly referring to is the story that David is rooted and grounded in is God's steadfast love for Israel. David knows it's never failed. He knows that every covenant that God has made has always been fulfilled. He knows that from Adam to Noah to Abram to all those uh, 12 sons of Israel. And then his promises specifically to David that God has not failed. And what David is going to do, he's going to ground himself in the story that he knows and the story that God is working out, the story that he's a part of, and he's going to remember God's steadfast love. When your world is spinning around, the one thing that will ground you is your identity in God's story. That is the one story that you can be sure that God will complete. God is telling his story, and he's invited us to be a part of that. And if you are a part of that story that God is writing, God's promises will not fail. And so David is so sure of God's steadfast love that even though he's on the run, even though David is probably hiding in caves or in the desert, even though he has no provisions, he is certain of the fact that one day he will enter God's house, he will bow down, and he will worship God. What is on David's mind? What is he assuring himself? David is not thinking about all of the worries. He's thinking about worship. Grounding yourself in God's love and thinking about worship in the middle of your crisis will help you glorify God in the circumstances. The minute you focus on your circumstances, you're sunk. Like the, the, the minute it becomes about you, or the minute it becomes about the person who hurt you, or the minute it becomes about the circumstances themselves, you're done. God has to be at the center of the story. And if he's not, then what I can promise you is that you will give in to worry, and you will probably lose those very things, the things like the woman with her purse. If her identity, once again, I don't know the woman, and I I can't judge. Let's just take that as an example. If the purse is what you love most, and when you face crisis, let me tell you, either that purse or something else, if that is where her treasure is, that treasure is just a thing. It's not a who. It's not a, it's not a person. There's no, there's no personal relationship. That little treasure that she has can never give her joy, can never fulfill or satisfy her. But if God is at the center, if his love is at the center, this is the one thing that can't be taken. And this is why when I talk about God's promises, it doesn't mean everything goes right for you. It doesn't mean that David wouldn't have been killed. It doesn't mean that we're promised everything goes perfectly well. But if God is at the center, that is one thing that can't be taken from you. If God is your treasure, then you you literally can move forward without worry because this is one thing that can't happen. 
Nobody can take God from you. They can take your life. They can take your things. They can take your house. They can take your kingdom. But if David's treasure is God himself and God's abundant and steadfast love, then David is grounded in a place where the very treasure that he has is the one treasure that can't be taken. So when you're in the middle of crisis, choose worship instead of worry. Worship the Lord. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about the person who's wronged you or hurt you. Don't worry about the circumstances, how everything... Well, if this happens and this happens... Have you ever gotten there? Have you ever been so worried about something that you think is going to happen and it never happened? And just think, have you been there? You worry, you fret, you talk. You, I mean, like you're exhausted and all your friends are exhausted. Your wife's exhausted. Your kids are exhausted because everything that you're always talking about, and then it never happens. Here's one way to never repeat that mistake. Give God your worry and make him the center. Worry about growing in Christ. Worry about growing in your relationship with God in the midst. And then you won't have to worry about anything that you lose. Let me hurry up. Look at the time. The fourth thing is talk honestly to God. David says, and you can tell he's talking specifically about the people who turned on him. He says, "There, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. By the way, if that sounded familiar, uh, Paul quotes that in Romans 13, or 3.13, when it says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. It's a, a passage that turns up again in the New Testament. It says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. They have rebelled against you. Let me just put it plainly. Pour out your heart to God and be honest with him. One of the things that we don't see is David guarding his words when he's talking to God. Guard your words when you're talking to people. But when you're pouring out your heart to God and just saying, God, I am struggling, pour out your heart. Let God hear how you're truly feeling. We have no, nothing in the scriptures that ever tells us we have to guard our hearts from being honest with God. Now, I won't tell you everything you say is, is biblical. I won't tell you everything that you say is is worshipful, but I will tell you, God will hear you honestly. And as you pour out your heart, God will begin to help you respond and to help you think biblically, God glorifyingly through the issue. But you can talk honestly to God, and sometimes you need to. And let me just tell you, don't pour out everything on people. That poison that's in your heart, guard. You can be honest. There there should be a close group of people that you can be honest with, right? You, you need to develop. There, there should be some people that you can just tell them, but you don't need to tell everybody. And one of the things that I think where we often go wrong is when we're in crisis, we just blab and we, we just open our mouths and we share and we share and we share. Uh, I think there's wisdom. Talk to God about it. Know whether I should say these things to other people. Right? You can tell God your honest feelings. But there's some things, there's, there's things that you're going to say against other people. There's things that you, you might say about God that aren't biblical, aren't correct, and aren't encouraging or edifying. And so go to God and, and give him those things. And if God it tells you, go share that with somebody else, get that off your chest, share with that other person. I'm not talking about people who've wronged you that you need forgiveness. That's open conversation. I'm just talking about when you're in crisis. Use some discretion and wisdom. Pour out your heart to God. And then as, as God begins to work, know who are the trusted counselors, who are the people in my life that I can also pour out my heart to that can help me. But 
this is not for everyone. This is a, a common mistake that we have, uh, and, and that is typically when we just give in to complaining. Fifthly, live. Live in the constant expectation that God will work for those who put their trust in him. So this is the last thing. Listen to verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Lastly, live in the constant expectation that God will work for those who put their trust in him. You have to know that. Let me just quote, like, where would David get this idea? Why was this so strongly in David's mind? Genesis 15.1, let's try that. After these things, the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That's why David begins to think like this. He recognizes God is the rewarder of those who put their trust in him, and he is their shield. Why else? Isaiah 64, 1-4 says this, For from of old no one has heard, no one has perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God who acts for those who wait for him. Isaiah 28, 16 says, So, this is what the Lord says. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes in it will never be shaken. Romans 8, 28, this is not uh, written for when David was living, but we have this theology that so clearly we see in Christ. And it says, He searches our heart, and he knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And this is what you know. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Trust that God will work for you when you wait on him. And live in that reality. If you haven't gotten to the point in your crisis where you have gone to God and you've given everything to him, where you've reflected on his character, where you have chosen to worship instead of worry, where you've talked honestly and poured out your heart to God, and now what's the last thing? You have to live it out. The gap between what we know and what we live is often vast, and that's what these opportunities to suffer really begin to work out in our life. They close the gap from what we know and what we say we believe versus what we live. And the gap for everybody is, is, should be Large and shrinking, I guess I would, the way I would praise it, right? Nobody is automatically just given faith, but it gets worked out through all the little things in life, the little ways we trust and then the big ways we trust. And the gap between what we know, the promises that we know, and the gap between the promises that we are living out in faith needs to, as we mature, grow smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's what maturity looks like. Which leads us to the next point. I'll be very quick. This is the theology of suffering. Suffering's a reality. It will always be a part of our lives. You cannot avoid it. But here's what God is doing. God is using suffering to move you towards maturity in Jesus Christ. And if that is not a part of your theology, if, if you think suffering is something to be avoided, then I need to invite you to recognize that suffering is one of the primary ways that God is going to mature you in your faith. Because your response in suffering tells you everything about, that you need to know, not me, Everything that you need to know about where you stand with God and your faith, you will find out through your trials and adversity and suffering. And you will find out how big is that gap. Here's what I say I believe. Here's the Christian I am on Sundays. And here's where I'm at in the work week. And as soon as I get that email or someone's not kind, 
I am not the same person. Well, we need to close that gap. And the only way you close that is not on the mountaintops. You close it by walking in the valley with the Lord so that he can begin to work on your life. So here's the summary. You've got five ways. Go to God, give him control. Remind yourself of God's character. Choose worship instead of worry. Talk honestly to God. Live in that constant expectation. So the adversity and trials are going to come. The question is, are you prepared? I asked you at the beginning. When was the last time your world fell apart? And what did you do? This morning I've given you, from the scriptures, not myself, a way that David responded to God, a way that I believe is God-glorifying, a way that we could not be overwhelmed when our world falls apart, but we could actually worship God when our world falls apart. So are you prepared? Let's pray. Father, we love your word because your word is life to us. It teaches us how to live. And God, we love your word because your word just isn't all about the mountaintops. But your word gives us instruction for living with the most difficult sets of circumstances that we encounter. Whether it's death or disease or betrayal. God, your word covers it all. And today we saw from David's life how we can respond when those closest to us betray us. When our life is literally in the balance. When the life that we had is overturned in an instant and we don't know if life ever returns to what we thought was normal. And so we ask that you be glorified in each of us. Whether we are in adversity now or adversity is on the way, God, would we choose to worship instead of worry? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I will simply read.